0: Council meeting April 25th, 2023, and I have a roll call.
1: Council Agency Authority Member Stockton? Here. Ritchie? Here. Silva? Here. Chapman? Here. Roberts? Vice Mayor, Vice Chair Wiley?
2: Here.
1: Mayor Chair Carley?
0: Here. Will you please stand with me for a moment of silence? City Manager, do we have any changes to our agenda tonight?
3: Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Actually, we do um, because of some circumstances tonight, I'd like to recommend that we push item 9B on business related to our emergency operations plan until a future meeting. That way our entire council can have the benefit of hearing the presentation on that and provide staff with comments, so.
0: Thank you. With that to, um with no other changes, minus 9B, do I have a motion? all in favor? Aye. Aye. We will move on to, we have a presentation tonight and what it is is a, oh, excuse me, ahead of myself. Now we have to do the approval of minutes. Um, any changes to the, the minutes for the April 11th, 2023 meeting and the special meeting of April nineteenth, twenty 2023? Motion to approve the minutes. Mo- motion and the second, all in favor? Aye. Aye. All right, now we get to the presentation. Tonight we have a special presentation and I won't make our city clerk or our deputy city clerk have any comments, but I wanna read a proclamation tonight. And that is, is April 30th through May 6th, 2023. It's professional municipal clerks week. And I, for one, understand like we all do how much work you you do, Michelle, and also Sheila. uh, Very much uh, an integral part of our city management office and all that goes on in city hall. So with that, I'd like to read the proclamation. Whereas the office of professional municipal clerk, a time honored and vital part of local government exists throughout the world. And whereas the office of the professional municipal clerk is the oldest among public servants and the office of the municipal professional municipal clerk provides the professional link between the citizens local governing bodies and agencies of government of other levels. And whereas professional municipal clerk have pledged to be ever mindful of their neutrality, impartiality, rendering equal service to all. And whereas the professional municipal clerk, there's a lot of these, but I'm gonna read them <laughs> because you are all important. Serves as the information center on functions of local government and community and whereas professional municipal clerks continually strive to improve the administration of the affairs of the office of the clerk through participation in education programs, seminars, workshops, and the annual meetings of their state, provincial, county, and international professional organizations. Now, therefore, be it resolved that I, John Carley, Mayor of the City of Vacaville, on behalf of the City of Vacaville and City Council, do hereby proclaim April 30th through May 6th, 2023, Professional Municipal Clerks Week. So congratulations and thank you for all the hard work that you do.
4: And you definitely take care of us. Thank you.
0: All right. We're gonna move on to item six, consent calendar. Anyone on the council wishing to pull an item tonight? Seeing none, anyone from the public wishing to pull any item on the consent calendar tonight? Seeing none, do I have a motion? We have a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. It passes, so we will move on. Item seven, business from the floor. This is a time when anyone from the public who wishes to address the council on any item that is not on tonight's council, you can address the council and you can come forward now. Mayor, vice mayor
5: and council members. My name is Sean McMahon. I'm about a 30 year resident of Vacaville. I also have the privilege of serving on the Parks and Rec Commission for the last six years. Councilman uh, Stockman, or, uh, Stockton, thank you very much for the uh, recent appointment. I appreciate it and I look forward to working with you uh, for District 1 and Vacaville. Tonight, I'm here to talk about Play for All. I hope that at this point, you've all had a chance to visit the Play for All Park and know how great that park is and how busy that park is. Um, that park, I think it's safe to say, is probably one of the most visited parks in Vacaville, one of the most popular parks in Vacaville, which is a good thing. Um, there is a downside to that. And that's the parking issue. I do have some concerns with safety um, there at the park. Uh, Currently with phase one, the park consists of 37 parking stalls. Phase two, which we're looking to um, start here soon, but funding is, is an issue. So phase two would include additional parking, which would make that up to 110 parking spots. So I think that that would resolve some of the parking issues out there at Play for All. Um, right now, we have people parking on both sides of Elmira. And uh, I know that um, most of you know how busy that street is right now. Um, unfortunately, there was a uh, fatality out there last year that was a bicyclist. Um, there, uh, a very good friend of mine was um, hit in a, a car, a T-boned in a car, um, pulling into that park recently. Um, so we do have some issues. Um, so I, I want to make sure that we address those as a city and that we ensure that the uh, the visitors out there are safe and parking um, is a safe spot for them as well. So tonight I'm asking um, for help from the city. I'm asking uh, if we could possibly entertain the idea of um, measuring funds or even district dollars to accomplish that uh, parking lot. The parking lot is part of the phase two um, plan. And that parking lot has gone up in priority as a number one priority for that park right now, just because it is so visited and so busy. Um, so I, I would ask that you please um, consider um, funding the parking lot uh, for the Play for all Park. And I do have numbers and um, I would be happy to meet with any of you um, in the days to, to follow. And we can talk about some of those numbers, um, but I think it's really important um, that we just keep that park safe out there and allow um, um, everybody to visit it, have a safe, um, pleasant visit out there. So thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to uh, working with you on that.
0: Thank you. Thank you, and I owe you a meeting, so I will follow up with that. Thank you. Anyone else wishing to address the council? Seeing none, I will close public comment from business from the floor and move forward to item 8, public hearings. And there are none. So we will move on to item 9A, business That is the annual financial audit, fiscal years 2021 and 2022, Mr. City Manager.
3: Thank you, Mr. Mayor and members of the council. As you mentioned, this is um, the annual financial audit for this past fiscal year, 21-22. Crystal Reims, our County Manager and her consultant will provide the council with an update on that item.
2: Council, thank you. Um, As the manager mentioned, I'm Krista Reams, the accounting manager. Also
5: here with me today is Brandon Young, CPA audit partner with our audit firm, LSL. Um, The presentation tonight is an informational overview of the annual audit process performed by our third party independent auditor and the results of the city's fiscal year 2022 audit. LSL was contracted in 2020 for an annual audit services and financial statement preparation. We are now in our third year of this contract. The past two years, the city has elected to prepare the financial statements internally, which were also reviewed by LSL. I'll turn it over to Brandon. All
4: right, thanks, Crystal. So um, before we there's a, there's a PowerPoint. It's gonna summarize the audit process overall, um, and then the audit, and then I'll have it answer any questions that you all have, so uh, we can... Oh, so this slide this summarizes kind of our responsibilities as the external auditors. Um, we're engaged to perform a financial audit, uh, meaning we're independent of the city, um, and we're uh, assisting in preparing and reviewing the, I should say ACFER, but um, the financial statements that are before you tonight. Um, what we're doing in our audit is we're testing the account balances of the numbers you see in that report. Uh, we're testing them through analytical procedures, confirmation procedures, testing checks, tests of details, um, really a lot of questions, a very uh, complex and comprehensive PPC lists that we send the city to uh, get a lot of supporting documents. Part of our audit is also considering the internal controls of the city, um, how they process cash receipts, how they process cash disbursements, how they track capital asset and grant activity, um, anything related to the financial statements and how they're processing those to make sure that there are checks and balances in place that would catch any errors um, before the auditors were to find them, so to say. This is a summary of the, the timeline of the audit overall. So we started in August doing our interim procedures where we're focusing on internal control work on the processes that the city has in place and doing a lot of planning and inquiry um, about it. The year audit this year we performed in January. That's when we we're analyzing the accounts and the, the city accounting. Um, and we're also, like I mentioned, confirming bank balances, performing cutoff procedures, meaning making actions are recorded in the proper year. Uh, GASB-68 and 75 have to do with your pension and OPEB liability and require some um, additional testing to make sure that the right people are included in that and they're calculated correctly. And then GASB-87 this year was new. Um, That's a new accounting standard having to do with leases. Previously, uh, there were operating capital leases that has since gone away, and now all the leases are reflected um, the same way. And Crystal and her team spent a lot of time having to analyze these leases and going back and forth on how to record them. There's a new footnote you'll see in there that says leases that kind of describes what that is and what's reflected there. Um, What that culminates to is the reports in front of you today, um, broken up in three sections. The intro section is a transmittal letter, usually provided by the city manager's office, giving a summary of kind of the city overall for a year. Then the financial section is is the meat of the document. Um, The audit report is our opinion, which I'll touch on in a minute. Um, the MDNA is uh, a high-level summary of the financial statements in a condensed version, giving kind of comparison year-over-year year and some descriptions for the changes. Then the statements themselves and the footnotes, which are getting increasingly long uh, year after year. So um, the stat section in the back has some interesting stats on on the city about um, key employers, demographic information that also is useful. That's also part of the document and culminates together into a almost 200-page document now. Right, next slide, please our goal is to obtain reasonable assurance. What this means is that we're not testing every transaction. Um, we do sampling procedures, analytical procedures, um, a risk-based audit to make sure areas of high risk are, um, we spend more time on those. Um, so we give reasonable assurance on the financial statements, meaning they're free from material misstatement. Uh, we calculate materiality for every opinion unit, meaning that we don't look at every transaction in those statements themselves, but they are thoroughly tested and analyzed to obtain reasonable assurance on the numbers. This is a blurb from um, the SAS 114 letter that's, a, that's in front of you. Uh, what it's telling you is our responsibility um, is to express an opinion on those numbers and management ultimately taking responsibility for oversight. Crystal and her team have prepared it, like she mentioned in the last two years, and really done a fantastic job um, preparing the reports in-house. A lot, of our, a lot of our agencies aren't able to do that and we prepare it for them. Um, so it's, it's a testament, I think, to the group. Slide, please. This I touched on, um, it's just the definition of internal controls. Um, meaning that we are obtaining an understanding of how they process transactions. I won't repeat what I already said. The, another uh, cutout from a statement of auditing standards, I'm talking about considering internal controls, meaning that for government audits, it's part of our required procedures. We don't give an opinion on the internal controls. Um, for those familiar with the private accounting world, that's a, like a, called a SOX audit, where they're actually giving an opinion on the internal of the company. Government agencies, that's not very common. Um, we do do a lot of work and assess the internal controls and give recommendations where we see fit, but we're not giving an opinion, not any of the city. Next slide, please. Um, consideration of fraud in an audit. So we're, we're required to perform um, fraud interviews. Uh, this all came out from the Enron uh, issue where basically the idea that fraud is uncovered mostly from anonymous tips. So how we've addressed that is we do uh, random interviews throughout the city, different departments, different levels. And really what we're trying to do is First, gauge if they are aware of any type of fraud or any allegations of fraud, and if they uh, how they feel the tone at the top is from management, from council, if they've ever been forced to do anything unethical to really kind of point us in direction where maybe there possibly is more risk for fraud to occur. Um, We didn't have anything that came up this year, and we haven't in the last couple of years, but we perform this every year and we mix up who was interviewed in the departments um, to make sure that we're kind of covering all bases of the city. Next slide. So now the results of the audit on um, the opinion letter is part of the financial statements. The city received an unmodified opinion, which is what you want to receive anything other than an unmodified opinion means that we either couldn't gain comfort over a number. We weren't able to gain the information that we needed to test the number, uh, or we um, essentially had to disengage from the audit altogether because the city was not forthcoming. Uh, we've never had that with the city. Um, so the unmodified opinion is standard audit language and it's, it's what you want to receive every year. The other two letters in the packet, which I've, I think attachment two and three. Um, one of them is the report on internal controls. That's um, a SAS 115 letter is also what it's called. So if there were any findings, any areas of weakness or deficiencies or audit adjustments we had to make during the course of the audit that the city missed something or there was an error, uh, there would be a, a, a finding in this letter. Last year, I think we did have one. This year, I'm happy to report that there were no items noted in the letter. So um, the issue we had last year didn't, didn't reoccur and they rectified it and it's been resolved. Uh, The other letter is the audit communication letter, which I think is attachment two. This is kind of a summary letter overall of of the audit results. Um, There were very significant transactions that were out of the normal course of city business, we would disclose them here. Um, There wasn't anything this year and there hasn't been. And then there's a a sentence talking about what I mentioned, GASB 87, which is the leases, letting you know that's new this year. Um, It does change how things are reported in the financial statements. And it also touches on pension and OPEB. What it's telling you is that these are estimates, they swing back and forth every year. For a variety of factors that uh, you really have no control over, it's the rate of return on the investments from CalPERS, changes in assumptions for mortality rates, um, number of people involved in the plan. So every year we evaluate those numbers that CalPERS calculates and make sure that they're reflected in the financial statements accurately. But they do swing back and forth with um, not much anybody can do about it. Um, if there were ever any difficulties encountered during the audit, or we uh, management wasn't giving us information, um, couldn't agree on a transaction, or they were just completely unresponsive it would be disclosed here. Uh, we've had the opposite of that with the city. They are very responsive. Crystal and her team are very quick to fulfill all of our requests. And um, this year we've, we've been working toward to catch up and get more timely. So I, I'm happy with the progress we've made. Um, something to point out for next year, um, a new account pronouncement is GASB 96, so similar to 87. GASB 96 has to do with any software subscription that the city has. Um, it will be another new line item on financial statements essentially trying to reflect the amount that they pay year after year for software-based subscription, which is a lot potentially when you have a police department um, and accounting department and project out how much they're kind of committed to over the course of the next, um, however long the life of the agreements is. So it is another uh, time commitment for city staff. And there's a lot of agreements to go through. I think they're probably upwards of 30 or 40 already that they're trying to work with other departments. They are trying to get ahead of it now, since GASB 87 we've already gone through, so that at least we have an idea what it looks like, but it is another, um, probably just a capacity need to to implement accounting standards. Luckily there's nothing coming down the pipe the next three years that is a massive time commitment for accounting standards. So they're giving us a little bit of a break, Um, but this one will take some time. Um, Last slide. So this is our goal for next year. Um, Again, I say a goal, because I think this has been our goal every year, Uh, but we are, working towards this goal to, to get this done by December. Um, considering the turnover that they've had in the department, I think what we were able to accomplish this year is really a success. Um, government is really struggling with how as I'm sure you all know, and accounting more so than other departments. So I think um, Crystal at one point was doing the job of probably four people by herself. So to get it to this point, I think we've made a lot of progress and they worked very hard. So this is our goal for for the 2023 timeline, and hopefully we can get close to achieving this. So, um that's my presentation and any questions uh you all have I'm happy to answer.
0: Thank you for the presentation. Uh, I do see I'm sure there's going to be a few questions but we'll start with council Member Silva.
6: Talk from there to yeah, yeah yeah. Thanks for the presentation. Uh just quick quickly um you mentioned that uh, employees employees can uh ask, or highlight area uh, concern of fraud. Is there a way for the public um, to, to highlight or report a reasonable area of fraud concern?
4: Uh, yeah, so typically um, there are avenues, whether it's through um, audit committee members um, on the council that we can we usually meet for planning uh, before the audit starts with the audit committee um, and go over any areas of concern that they are aware of or have um, arisen. Uh, they usually don't contact the audit firm directly, but they usually can through the audit committee. Audit committee, and um, who's the audit, uh, how do they get in contact with the audit committee? That probably is a staff question.
2: I am not exactly sure on the process of contacting the audit committee.
7: We'll follow can, up on that.
2: Ken can assist with that. Sorry, Ken.
7: Hi, good, good evening. So for the audit subcommittee, the members are the city uh, treasurer, Jay Yerkes. It's Councilmember Chapman and then council member Richie. And so as far as contacting them, they are the subcommittee members and I believe their emails and phone number are actually on the city website.
6: Thank you.
0: And, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I would also believe that through any council member or staff that there there would be a way to direct uh, any concern or complaint, uh, whether it was inside the audit process or outside, but it's a good, it's a good, it's a good observation. Council member or uh, Vice Mayor Wiley.
2: Thanks for the information. Uh, Just a couple questions about how you actually do the audit is a lot of it, like you don't have to be in Vacaville to do it. You do a lot of it uh, virtually, so to speak. And w- so, where is your company actually located? Because I was interviewed, and the person was not in Vacaville. So I just wondered how it how it physically works.
4: Uh, yeah. So it, it's changed a lot the last few years. Um, previously, it was where we were out in person. You know, five days a week. And um, accounting has changed. So I'm I'm in Sacramento. So we do have a Sacramento office that a lot of the team work on. Uh, but we do have employees now throughout the United States and, and the audit we do for Vacaville is exclusively remote. Um, I would say 90% of our clients are, um, are remote. It hasn't changed our procedures at all and some of it actually has streamlined, to be honest. Um, we're able to do Zoom and Teams meetings and keep it as effective as we were. Uh, it's just the, the talent shortage for accounting. Um, people are looking anywhere they can to find talent and we've found a lot of talent. It's just not in the Northern California area. So really they're all over.
2: And if you can spend your time doing the audit rather than traveling back and forth, that makes a lot of sense as well. So, how long have you been doing the audits for Vacaville?
4: We just completed our third year. Um, so, we started in this year 2020, 2020. 2020.
2: 2020. Okay,
4: thank you. I don't see
0: any current questions, and lights up here. So, I'm going to open it up to the public. Seeing no one from the public wanting to speak on this issue, I will close it. Uh, I don't uh, there's there's no action to take other than to receive it so at this point I would just say thank you it's always good to get uh, a good report and so I just want to say I appreciate the fact that I know uh, Ken you and your staff work tirelessly and to make sure that not only are you running the, the budget but you're also making sure that there's an audit behind it so that we can feel comfortable about it and also that the public can have trust in what we're doing so thank you all right, uh, item 9C, Mr. City Manager.
3: Thank you, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the council. This is a continuation on the series that uh, staff has been bringing to the city council related to um, discussions regarding housing in our community. Uh, this one is particularly important because it's an update on our draft uh, housing element section that uh, we have been, um, I say, our team here has been uh, working diligently on for uh, quite a while now. And so I'm gonna turn it over to our team um, led by uh, community development director, Aaron Morris to give you this
2: latest uh, update.
8: Thank you, Mayor Carley, members of council. Um, Here I am again with the third part of a four part series. Uh, This one has a lot of meat in it, so. I'll say that and then get right to it. Um, Previously, I presented a session about our general plan as a community vision and all the land use tools that we as a city use to implement it. Uh, And then last week, or actually less than a week ago, we talked about housing development, community demographics and economic prosperity and the connection between housing and economic prosperity. Um, Here we are this evening to talk about growth management tools, our housing strategy, and really the nitty gritty of the housing element. And this that that latter part is a study session so we can do it as deep of a dive as you'd like into the housing element ahead of a future adoption hearing. And I'll be back next week with, or two weeks from today with the inclusionary zoning uh, study session. And with me this evening is Jenny Gastellum with PlaceWorks. She is the lead on the consultant team that's been helping us prepare what is now our 750 page and climbing housing element. So. I have some of the answers, she has more of them as we get into the rest of it. So um, one of the the, the themes earlier on was sort of this question about how the city manages growth. And a lot of that was covered in my first presentation about our general plan and how it identifies what's gonna happen where and at what intensity. As part of the 2015 comprehensive general plan update, uh, two growth areas were identified. So I wanna talk a little bit about those this evening. Uh, That 2015 general plan update also recognized the city's urban growth boundary, which limits development to a fixed outer boundary. And then also that same general plan acknowledged the city's sphere of influence. And so these are fairly technical planning issues. And I'm just going to do kind of a high level before we get into the housing element. So um, our urban growth boundary is actually very difficult to see on this exhibit. And I apologize. It's a dashed green line But essentially, uh, to the south, it encompasses Lower Lagoon Valley, and then it generally travels around areas that are already developed or mostly developed, with the one exception, really, of those two growth areas on the east side of Leisure Town Road, um, shown in that buff color. And I'm going to have another exhibit that shows those much better. So the two growth areas, I can't well, much better, maybe an overstatement, somewhat better. Uh, the two growth areas, the east of Leisure Town uh, Road growth area, is the one in the south part or the lower part of this exhibit. Uh, when the general plan was adopted, it encompasses 1,300 acres, and this includes 600 acres of land that is designated urban reserve. The other growth area, most of these, this council, except for two, um, ha, we did a presentation about it last last year. The northeast growth area is 1,400 acres up in the very Northeast corner of the city. And that includes approximately 90 acres of urban reserve land. Essentially the general plan in 2015 recognized that there would be future planning of these areas before they were brought into development. And that they were sort of the next part of Vacaville that could develop through a specific general plan amendments, specific plans, annexation, and a whole host of other fairly um, lengthy and hefty um, proceedings. Um, so the urban reserve lately has actually gotten a lot of interest from the development community and to a certain extent from the public. And before I do this slide, I wanna go back. So if you look at the, I wish I could use the pointer, but I'm still not, I'm still learning that. <laughs> if you look at the, um, the Easter Leisure Town growth area, the urban reserve properties are at the very bottom um, below Roberts Ranch. Uh, bottom uh, right-hand corner of that, or bottom of the column. And then we have the farm at Alamo Creek. That was urban reserve, and that was brought into the city. And the piece behind it, the fields at Alamo Creek, is a pending project in the urban reserve. Uh, Just a little bit to the north, those two sort of hatch-stripey polygons, those are urban reserve properties that have not yet had any development proposals. And then the city just received a proposal for the Rayson's development. And that's that um, purple hatch at the top of the East of Leisure Town growth area that will be coming to the council for further discussion. I think the point I'm making is there's a lot of interest in the urban reserve um, and in in this particular part of the urban reserve. So the urban reserve evaluation process, it was last June actually that the council received a presentation on this. It's been a little while. Um, Our municipal code sets forth a three-part process for the city council to decide whether to unlock the urban reserve, what you're trying to accomplish there, um, et cetera. So the first step is preparation of a development inventory and land need forecast. Um, We did prepare a draft last year and are working on bringing an updated draft back to the uh, planning commission and council. Once the city is, council is satisfied that we're projecting housing need, basically to the council satisfaction if there's a need for this urban reserve land, then we would proceed to part two and look at whether or not any of this urban reserve land would be helpful to developing that needed housing. And then the third step is actually the procedural part where then it would actually be full general plan amendment process, specific plan, development agreement, annexation, and a whole bunch of other um, fairly large government actions. So um, last summer, um, we presented, um, it was a very brief, I presented our report, our initial report to this council uh, minus two. Um, After that, and we asked for council direction and got it, we wanted to meet with the public, talk to property owners and developers, get feedback on the actual inventory because um, it's, was a, it's a pretty big and, and um, substantial document. So we did that, got a lot of feedback and we are anticipating bringing the revised draft report to the planning commission for a study session this summer and then to the council after that, um, just to give you guys that update. Another tool that's in our growth management strategy and our general plan is our plan growth ordinance. And this was adopted in 1991, um, last revised in 2000. Um, this is the one I think I mentioned last last presentation that actually conflicts with with state law at this time. And so this is a tool that ultimately every year there was a certain amount of residential building permits that were allocated. And so the idea was new building permits couldn't exceed the allocation. In practice, there was never really a, challenge with the number of allocations and the number of permits that we're trying to be um, implemented. But in any case, um, we have a program in our new housing element that requires that we suspend this ordinance through January 1st of 2034. So this will not be a tool that we'll be using in the time ahead. Mm So at this point, my presentation, um, I really do not wanna spend a lot of time on the housing strategy, but with the slides I have that I'm gonna clip through fairly briefly, I wanna make the point that this council um, adopted a housing strategy, set forth goals through an independent process from the housing element. It turns out that a lot of the goals of the housing strategy totally synergize with what we have to do in our housing element, Um, but in essence, we have, I'm just gonna go through the goals. There's a goal in our local plan to encourage a diversity of housing choices, to address barriers to needed housing production. Uh, goal three is to create new, in, new initiatives and programs that support the development of housing. And this includes interestingly strategy 3.5, which is looking at creating a local funding source to assist in housing development. That's something we might be talking about with our inclusionary zoning presentation. Um, and so those are the those are the, the key three goals that um, we have actually made sure are fully integrated into the housing element that I'm about to present. So um, if the council will recall, um, we were back, we were here in October of last year with a study session on the housing element. Um, the housing element has changed since that time. Uh, we resubmitted it based on state comments um, uh, to HCD for a second round of review, we resubmit for a third round of review, and then we ended up turning in final, final changes um, as part of getting to where we are with the housing element. So this tonight's presentation focuses on two components, um, the programs that are new to Vacaville or are changing that we're gonna be required to implement, specifically some programs that will be coming to this council um, in June for approval, because they're part of what we're gonna do as part of adopting the housing element. And then I wanna spend some time on the housing sites inventory, because this is where the city in this document is planning for our future lower income sites and below moderate income sites. And I wanna make sure the council feels familiar with the information. So sort of the no surprises idea about um, future housing development. So um, we've talked enough about what a housing element is. Um, I talked about the last year's study session. Um, In April, actually just last week, the planning commission had a study session similar to this one. And then tonight is your study session again, ahead of the adoption. So our housing element, it is, as I said, more than 750 pages. Thank you, PlaceWorks and HCD and all the work that we went into it, but it has basically six major components. There's a housing needs assessment, There's a fair housing assessment. There's the goals, policies, and programs. We're gonna talk about programs tonight. The inventory is like the bedrock of our housing planning for our city. And then it also includes a constraints analysis and an evaluation of past performance. Again, I'm gonna focus on programs and the site's inventory, but I want you to know that there really are six major components to this, um, this thing. So at the heart of our planning for housing is our assigned regional housing needs allocation. And that number of units that we are required to plan for as a city is 2,595. Um, it isn't just as simple though, as planning to produce that number of units. We have to actually demonstrate how we're gonna produce subset numbers of units at different affordability levels. So our current RINA requires that we plan for 677 very low income units, 404 lower income units, 409 moderate income units, and then the rest can be above moderate. So as we get into the sites, what we're really trying to achieve are the very low income and lower income units because those are the hardest to plan for. And to a certain extent, we're also looking for sites that could be good for producing those moderate income units because those are also sometimes challenging. Uh, Vacaville has historically not had a problem producing above moderate income housing units. I'm gonna skip that one for now and that one. I wanna get to the site's inventory. So um, the thing to know about the site's inventory, I've already mentioned that um, the hardest thing about this housing element is finding sites that the state will say can be, we can say yes, you've planned for these lower income housing sites. And when it comes to our lower income housing sites that we have to demonstrate we've planned for, we can count pipeline projects. So that's approved affordable housing projects like Oak Grove, and Allison Apartments, those are considered part of how we're gonna meet our arena for the next cycle. We can count vacant sites that could possibly produce these units. And so we've really looked all over the city for vacant sites um, specifically to include in our plan. Uh, We can include include commercial sites, Uh, commercial sites under uh, current housing law and our current law can develop into housing and we can say this site could produce a certain number of units. So we've again, scoured the city looking for commercial sites that might be able to produce housing units. We can also count underutilized sites. And these are, um, actually, they're very specific sites. I'm gonna go through those. They're actually depicted in red. So they'll leap off the map to you. And then we can also count ADUs. If we know we're gonna have a certain number of ADUs based on our track record, we can say that's gonna be part of how we meet our requirements. So this is the fun part of the presentation where um, I'm gonna go through the sites. Um, There's a lot of them. Um, The main thing, I guess, that I want the council to know is that In many cases, the general plan and zoning for this site is not changing. It's just basically being acknowledged in this housing element. But there is a table in the housing element that articulates the city's assumptions about how many low income or moderate income units we're gonna get from this site, if it would develop. I think the other caveat to that is that nothing requires a private person to develop their site. So we have to plan for it, we have to allow for it, we have to count all these sites and figure out how how we can come up with our, our, uh, our requirement. But if I'm talking about a site that you're familiar with and you were to know, for example, that you have an unwilling seller and they plan on being there forever, there's nothing about this housing element that forces them to do anything. It it is in that way, a planning exercise. So um, slide one of nine, some of these have more sites than others. (laughs) I'm gonna start with the Southeast corner of Vacavalli Parkway and Allison Drive. These are the ones on the left. Sorry, not on the left. These are the ones. I'm gonna start with Sites 60, 61, oh, it is 5960. It's the one over on the left hand side of the screen. So, this site is currently in the general plan designated for commercial office and is proposed to be redesignated to residential high density. It's a 20 acre site, and we believe this site could produce 520 low income housing units. I'm gonna to go to the next site, which is site 63, 62, and 64. And they are over near Quinn Road and Leisure Town Road, uh, just right to the left of that 80 um, icon. Uh, these are sites that are currently a uh, commercial highway. They would be general plan change to uh, residential high density. And this 3.2 acre site could, and could possibly produce 98 low-income units. Um, Now we're gonna go to Orange Drive. We have two different kinds of Orange Drive sites, Orange Drive North and Orange Drive South. So it's that little red wedge on the bottom right of this particular uh, slide. Uh, This is called Orange Drive North. And this is the site where there's a new car wash building. Um, And the rest of the site would be designated to residential high density. And we don't have a number of units we think will come out of it, but based on the size of the site, it could generate some housing for, for our city. The Orange Drive South sites, which are all those green sites below the red polygon, that would be changed from commercial highway to residential high density. As a five acre site, it could produce 117 low and nine moderate income units. Trying to follow the premise. There'll be no secret sites in this housing element. That's why I'm going through these carefully. So we'll keep going. Um, and not, questions not, are-
0: Excuse me, I'm going to interrupt- Of course. Because there, we could get so far down. I just want to, What's the density? I know you were
8: talking Oh, about- residential high density is 20.1 to 30 units per acre. Thank you. And that's, thank you for that question. I'm gonna talk about that in another slide when we talk about how we're moving that to the 30 unit uh, maximum, but thank you. Any other questions as I go into two of nine?
2: One quick question, because you said, oh, this would require a change to this, and this would require a change. I mean, would all those be general plan changes, which are very difficult to make?
8: The general plan changes I'm presenting tonight are all going to come to the council in a package with the housing element in June. Um, These first slides turns out to be the part we're doing a lot of changes. There are a lot of sites where there are no proposed changes, but at your June meeting, you will receive the housing element recommended for adoption, and you'll receive all of the companion general plan and zoning changes that implement what the housing element says we're going to do as one package.
2: But would they be like streamlined changes? Because what I've heard is how hard it is to change the general plan. The
8: council can change the general plan when the council wants to change the general plan and our housing element, if you adopt it, it is required that you also adopt concurrent general plan changes so that the housing element can be implemented. Okay, two of nine. So um, sites. there's a bunch of sites in green, actually most of the sites to the north of this particular, north of Monta Vista, sites 1, 20, 21, 22, 25, and 26. These are all sites with some topography, they're hilly, Um, they're designated for residential estate, which is a very low density designation, and they're not proposed to change, and it's presumed that they will um, develop it above moderate. Oh, how nice. Thank you, uh, Director Matsumiya. You are definitely owe you something there. Um, so that's sites one, sites 20, site 21, site 22, site 25, and site 26. These are all residential estate, three units to the acre, not going to change. Um, not assuming to produce any low-income housing there. Site two, which is at the corner of Monta Vista and Orchard, um, currently, the general plan designates it for commercial office. It would change to residential high density, uh, 20.1 to 30 units per acre, and it's expected to produce 24 low income units. Uh, sites 27, 28. 29 and 30 are all in the Markham area. And I have a separate slide on this because there's um, some additional detail on this one, but these sites um, would be designated and would ultimately could produce, um, let's see, 16 moderate income units and 20 low income units if developed. And then we have sites eight, nine, and 10. This is this red, um, red site here. This is actually where the furniture store is on Monte Vista and the former CVS site. So again, this is one where, you know, that site could stay as it is forever, but if someone wants to develop it based on its size, it could produce 73 to 260 housing units, of which we're presuming that seven could be low income, 21 could be moderate income, and five could be above moderate income. So it's really an opportunity to get a variety of housing affordability levels and get quite a bit of housing, uh, should that site convert from its current um, condition. Okay, three of nine. So site 11 is the currently the Glenbrook shopping center. And this is one of those sites that's considered underutilized. It has development on it, but there's potential for more development. It was designated mixed use in 2015. Um, It's density range is 10 to 40 dwelling units per acre. No change to that. It's anticipated to produce eight low, low income units, 11 moderate income units, and seven above moderate income units. Okay, and then we go to sites 81 and 82. And this is over here again on East Monta Vista, just a little bit north of the 700 park site, which is that approved downtown housing project. Uh, This is near Depot. And this site um, in the specific plan, the density range is 18 to 65 dwelling units per acre. And it could produce, uh, let's see, 13 moderate income units according to our calculations. And then 41, 42 and 43, which are also in the downtown area are anticipated to produce 17 moderate income units. Now we're gonna go over to Boyd Street, which is sites 44 and 45. Well, they can't both be on Boyd, but near Boyd Street. Uh, these sites also no general plan change, also set the, the stage was set by the downtown specific plan and cumulatively they're expected to produce 11 moderate income units. Uh, now we're gonna to go to one of the quick quacks of a couple of my presentations, so 51 and 52. Uh, down here um, on Davis Street, um, these two sites combined are anticipated to be able to produce 17 low-income units. And then site 49 is my last one on this slide. This is where Meeks Hardware is on Hume Way, and there's a site right next to that. And that site um, could possibly produce 16 low-income units. Onward. Okay, so now we're gonna go to site 29. It's really small, it's right here. Um, And this one is on Callen Street. Uh, This site is currently designated general commercial. And this is a case where again, the housing law says you can put housing on general commercial sites. So we're not changing the general plan or not proposing to, but that site could generate 13 low-income units. Uh, Site 37 is over on the east side of Browns Valley Parkway on East Monta Vista, another general commercial site. No general plan change, possibly 24 low-income units. Um, Site 47 actually is an interesting shaped site, is it 46 actually, this big one here, this is actually right near the Travis Credit Union, it's a remainder property. Uh, It's a pretty large site, we anticipate it could produce 115 low income units. And then we'll go to 47 and 48 on Elmira Road. These are little sites at Elmira um, and Aegean way. General commercial, uh, general plan, no change, possibly seven moderate income units. And then we're gonna to go to sites 71 and 73 on Leisure Town Road, and I have to find these. Here we are, they're up here next to Green Tree, which is this big yellow polygon. Um, so that's the Leisure Town apartment site, and there's no general plan change proposed, except that the maximum density would go up, as I'll explain in a moment. Uh, that site could produce 102 low-income units. Um, site 72 is a really small site in the same neighborhood that's currently designated for neighborhood commercial. That one we think at maximum five moderate-income units. And then lastly, for this slide, we've got site 74, which is here, it's a small site on Nut Tree Court. Um, Commercial office is its designation, no change, and we think it could produce seven low-income units. Okay, on to five of nine. There are a bunch of sites on Butcher Road, so I'll start with sites 12, 13, and 14. Um, These sites are all general commercial designated, not changing that. Um, Cumulatively, they could produce 38 low-income units. Uh, Site 15 is actually the site of the Palms project. And so we're counting on it to produce 36 moderate income units. Um, Sites 16, 17, and 18 are still in the Butcher Road area. These sites have the same general commercial um, general plan designation, and they could have produced nine low income and 12 moderate income housing units. And the last site on this slide is site 19 on Alamo. Um, This is a commercial general site. Um, 1241 Alamo, and we anticipate it could produce 19 low-income housing units. Okay, six of nine. So, um, 49 Meeks, 49. The site 49 I talked about on one of the previous site That was the one on, near on Hume. So we'll go to 50. Site 50 is this very long site next to the cemetery, former SID headquarters. It's designated residential low density, and we're not proposing to increase that. We actually looked at that site, but due to its topography and its width, it just didn't seem viable to nudge it up in terms of density. Um, So we think it could produce 31 moderate income units. And now there's the other quick quack I mentioned, sites 51 and 52, um, 17 low income units possibly on these sites. Um, And then 53 is Alamo drive next to the mobile home park. So we're back down here on Alamo. Uh, This site is already designated residential high density, Uh, 17 low income units are anticipated. And then we've got sites 56, 57 and 58. So 56 and 58 are red because they're developed. One is the 99 cent store and one is an old theater. Um, And then the other site is vacant. So between these three sites, we think cumulatively we could get eight low income units, 11 moderate income units, and five above moderate income units. The last slide has very few things to talk about. So we're getting there. Site 79, this is actually a pretty large site. Um, Let me make sure I'm looking at the right slide though. Site 79, this is a large site. This is actually just south of the Ranch Hotel on Rivera Road. Um, And this site is currently in the general plan business park. So redesignating it to residential high density of the range of 20.1 to 30 units per acre. We think we could get 230 um, above moderate income units and probably another 230 moderate income units um, as part of one project. And then these were actually covered, except for of course, the yellow, the yellow sites, which are either pending or approved projects. So that was the sites inventory. I know that was a lot of information. This is all in the housing element. If you can get into the 750 pages and find table 4-5, it's all there. I was trying to bring it together for the council so you'd have a tour of it without necessarily um, doing, spending as much time with that table as me and my staff have, have done over the last year. So um, the next section of my presentation talks about very briefly affirmatively furthering fair housing and then I'm just going to talk about our housing programs and highlight a few for the council. So the thrust behind this entire new housing law and what's really come into our housing element is a focus on affirmatively furthering fair housing. And the state views that as promoting housing supply choices and affordability at different levels removing barriers for, uh, that limit people to be able to move to neighborhoods where they want to live so that people are not just living in one area because that's the income they have. They don't have opportunity. Uh, looking at ways to conserve and actually improve existing neighborhoods. And then also um, there's, a, there's a lot of rigor these days around preventing the displacements of existing residents from their homes and communities, particularly as areas are developing and transforming. Oftentimes that ends up pushing people out. So we have policies that address that. Um, and luckily we're not gonna talk about all 40 housing programs, but our current housing element has 40 housing programs. Approximately 25% of them are continuing. We've had them for the last eight years, maybe longer, not changing them, just keeping going. About fifty percent of them are continuing, but they've been changed. Things have been added. Things have been become more detailed. There's more dates, more commitment, and then about twenty-five percent or ten of these are new programs. And actually, of all of these, about seventeen of them touch on the theme of affirmatively furthering fair housing. So it's a, it's quite a suite of programs. So earlier, um, in response to a question from Vice Vice Chair Wiley, I talked about some concurrent. Items that will be coming to council at the next council meeting where I will be here, actually the one in June, June 27th. So we have some things that we have to do if we adopt this housing element the same night that the housing element is adopted. So the first one is our housing element program HE9. Any site that we included in a previous housing element said this is where the housing is gonna happen that didn't develop. And especially if we included it in more than one previous housing cycle, we now have to allow housing development by right. Meaning on these sites, it's just a building permit. There's no public hearings, there's no discretion, there's no use permit, there's no design review straight to building permit. Caveat on that, on all these sites that are affected by this, the person doing that would have to deed restrict 20% of the housing units to Affordable to lower-income households, um, that that probably would would create a barrier for that kind of thing. But this is what we're required to do under state law with these repurposed sites: is we do have to change our code to allow um, housing development by right. And so there's a, there's a set of four sites that are affected by this. Um, And those are site 28, um, the Markham area apartments, one of those sites there, I have some exhibits further down, uh, two sites uh, that comprise the Leisure Town apartments. And then site 78 is that site that was donated to the city for housing for military families. And that's one that we have some very specific programs to move forward on trying to get that site um, developed. Another concurrent program that will be coming forward on June 27th is the HE 15 planning regulation amendments. So we'll be bringing land use and development code amendments to define mobile homes and family to the satisfaction of the state of California. Um, We have to allow certain land uses by right in, in specific zoning districts. We have to choose zoning districts where one could build an emergency shelter, a large residential care facility, employee housing, a single SRO, single room occupancy, and a low barrier navigation center, not all on one site, but we have to find locations where these uses would be allowed through a ministerial building permit process. So that's gonna come to council in late June. We have to do what I talked about earlier with the plan growth ordinance. Um, We have to basically sunset it or suspend it until 2034. Uh, We have to bring forward objective standards for minor use permits, conditional use permits and adjustment applications. And we also have to amend our reasonable accommodations findings. So my advanced planning team is very busy bringing all this together for planning commission in uh, May and council in June. And then the other and final concurrent program is the um, program HE18, which is our site inventory rezone program. Every site in Vacaville that's designated residential high density, um, up until this current housing element, 24 units was the maximum end of the density range. Because Vacaville's population has fully eclipsed 100,000, we are now required to have the maximum density be 30 units per acre on these sites. So this includes seven vacant sites and it includes quite a few other sites and I'm gonna go through those. So these are the vacant sites where the maximum density, and remember it doesn't change the minimum. The minimum is 20.1 to the acre. Someone can develop at that, but we do need to bump up the maximum. So there's three sites in the Markham Rocky Hill Road area that have the residential high density designation. And that would basically be um, the maximum density would increase to 30. There is a site on Alamo Drive and Alamo Lane, site 53, uh, same thing. And then there's those two apartment sites that we talked about in the Leisure Town area on Bryce Way and Leisure Way um, that would also have a maximum density of 30 units to, for the acre under our changes. And then we have quite a few sites that I've gone over um, in the site inventory, but it's gonna go through them again. These are the ones where we're actually changing the general plan designation as part of the package that's coming to you on June 27th. So Monta Vista and Orchard's going from commercial office to residential high density. Uh, The the sites on Butcher Road that I described earlier are going from general commercial to residential high density. Those sites um, on Vacaville Parkway and Allison Parkway are going from commercial office to residential high density. Again, these were covered, but this is a little bit more of a, a zoom in on the sites we're talking about. Uh, there's the sites on Quinn Road and Leisure Town Road, kind of oddly configured with lots of roads cutting them into parts, but uh, these sites will be going from general commercial to residential high density. Um, and then there's the middle um, image for the Le- the orange drive sites. So both the North site and the South site would be going from commercial highway to residential high density. And then the site on the right is the military housing site. This site has a policy that um, is in our draft policies that requires um, action this year to actually put an RFP out for the, on this site to seek people who are interested in developing housing to serve our military. And one of our housing programs requires we get the RFP out and we take some other steps toward actually uh, developing this site with um, housing for military families. And then here's our Rivera Road site again, um, just south of the Ranch Hotel, going from business park to residential high density. I forgot, there's one more concurrent program. So actually it's convenient that on the night that the council will hopefully adopt the housing element, your adoption of the safety element and the environmental justice element satisfies housing program 40. So we adopt these two elements and that, that program has successfully been completed. And those will be coming to you on June 27th. So um, I'm not gonna read all these, but um, over the first um, two, well, well, one and a half, two years of our housing element, if it gets adopted and we start working on it, we have like a ton of programs that were expected to get done. And there's all kinds of details in the housing element, but all the programs on this slide are all have to be started and, and move forward and basically completed within the first, basically year and a half that our new housing element is in effect. And this, same, this this is the next slide, same situation. All of these programs have to be completed to the level specified in the housing element by the year 2025. And these ones as well. I think the point I'm making with these slides is that our housing element has a ton of work for both the housing and community services department and the community development department and the, City, the council and the planning commission, because we have to bring forward a lot of housing initiatives to meet the requirements of our housing element. Um, there's one more slide of things we have to do in the next year and a half, um, and then we get to the the five. Uh, these five programs are ones that we're not, we do not need to do um, until starting around 2026 and through the closure of the current, the, the future eight-year cycle. Uh, a lot of work to do for housing element, um, satisfying. So um, there are benefits to having a certified housing element, and I'm just going to touch on those because this is a lot to take in, I imagine. Um, Having a certified housing element really makes a city eligible for grant funding. And it's not just for housing, it's also for regional transportation funding, infrastructure. Um, The state has really um, linked housing element certification and successful implementation with money that they're willing to give us. There are negative consequences, which are being experienced by some of our cities in Southern California. Um, you know, there's financial penalties. Um, they, they'll take away your authority to do permitting. I mean, there's all kinds of bad things that can happen, but I don't wanna get too far into that. So I'm gonna wrap up here with our, where we, what we've been doing lately and next steps. Uh, the only new information on this slide is that after the planning commission study session last week, Um, It was actually just yesterday um, the city got approval of the draft housing element from the state. So that does not take away the council's authority to approve or deny the housing element. But if we brought you the housing element before the state was satisfied with it, there was a pretty good chance that we'd have to come back to you because they'd be making more changes. So we've gone through this iterative process. And as of yesterday, we have a letter saying that the state is satisfied, that we've adequately planned for housing, that we have adequate programs and policies, and essentially that we're in compliance with state law. So that was a big moment for our planning team. Um, We'll be going to planning commission on May 16th with the housing element, the safety element, the environmental justice element, and all these companion general plan amendments and zone changes. And we'll be back here in council on June 27th. And then after the council takes action, we actually have to resubmit a bunch of stuff to the state, but at that point it's just, it's more of a ministerial process to get our final final. At this point, I would be happy to take questions and comments and some of them may be answered by Jenny.
0: Thank you for that presentation. Um, and this, to those in the audience and those watching, the sheer amount of work that's behind this is uh, incredible. I don't know how you keep up with it. i wanting to read close between 750 and 800 pages and not even to mention all the other documents and revisions. there's going I already see some questions I'm going to start with um, a question but I'm not going to take up all my time because I have a bunch of them does suggest that you're going to need staff out of the general fund to have a person to manage this is that also part of this
8: We have staff in our advanced planning team and one of their chief roles once the housing element is adopted is to actually be one of the key implementers. But to your point, that's something that um, Emily Cantu, our housing community services director and I and our city manager have been been thinking about because there's quite a bit of work um, in the time ahead over the next year and a half, essentially.
0: My my first observation is I'm concerned that uh, there's a lot of things that say general fund. And there's a lot of things that uh, suggest that are there, um, a lot of unfunded mandates that the state is requiring through education, communication, and all this, if you were to look at, look at this, it appears as if there's a lot of work here, more than just that one person. There's a lot of work on staff, and has is there a thought or has there been a thought to assess through this process, the impact on the city of Vacaville, knowing that we've reached 100,000 and we're going to have a density change um, I believe that we need to make sure that we educate the public to say that there's some things that are no longer in our control and it's, it could be unpleasant for people who see some um, permit only and by right uh, housing that could occur where we don't have control, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I just had a, a thought that somehow in there there, if there was a way to capture what this is really going to cost the city of Acabell, worth the effort to track and document because we're asking people to take on all these elements and it would be really good at some point to tell the state um, it would be nice to have some funding for what you're expecting for this level you're you're declaring it an emergency across the entire state and in every community at, at the same time there's a lot to this that I believe that if we truly were to capture whether it was in, in time or actual cost it would be more than just adding one person. So. Uh, but thank you for the presentation. And I know that there's a lot of questions. I'm gonna start with uh, Councilman Silva. Uh,
6: thank you for the presentation and all the work and the updates. <clears throat> um, so uh, can you just, just uh, please clarify the difference between the housing strategy and the housing element?
8: The housing strategy um, is not required by state law. It's both an aspirational document, but it's also a document in which the city council and the city staff that worked on preparing it can really think about how to balance housing development with quality of life and how that relates to economic prosperity. It doesn't have any it has it has goals and it has timeframes for implementing them, but it doesn't have any teeth. I mean, if the council gives it teeth, it does have teeth, and as staff we think we're going we're implementing it and focusing on it. The housing element has what they call quantified objectives. And if you were getting looking at those 40 programs, for example. There's literally metrics that we're being measured against. And every year we report to the state on our progress in meeting those quantified objectives. So it just, the housing element has a lot more teeth and a lot more reporting responsibility because it's a state instrument. So
6: council approved uh, funding for a neighborhood plan uh, for the Markham area. Where Where would that fit into the hierarchy of these documents?
8: There are actually a lot of programs of the 40 that relate to affirmatively furthering fair housing, and some of that is improving quality of housing in our existing neighborhoods. So as we move forward as a city, and I, I don't know exactly how your plan would fit in with this, but if you had a neighborhood improvement plan or a neighborhood plan, you be as a city could look at, oh, how could this plan also achieve housing program XY? And how could we say, oh, this plan actually satisfies this requirement. So we would look for opportunities to do that. Um, like a lot, some, several of the policies are about improving the quality of housing and neighborhoods.
6: Um, okay, so then, um... So we talked, so, sorry, uh, going to slide. So highlighting the, the Markham Avenue, Rocky Hill intersection type area, I think it was slide 34. Uh, so then there were, uh, were increased. So the, it's currently zoned high density. Is that, uh, I believe that's if I recall. I know it was. I'm just trying to go from memory. Oh,
8: I just—that was not what I wanted to do. Hang on one second. I'm getting more practice as I come to council every week <laughs> uh, with these presentations. Let's see here. I want to go to Yeah,
0: slide thirty-four. Disorder.
8: Slide I'm going to go to thirty-four and not push from beginning.
6: So I mean, just in general, um, I know. So just to clarify, so we're looking at existing spaces that are zoned commercial. Um, and or residential and then max uh, and looking at the numbers there to to say that we have the potential to develop these many to meet the arena numbers correct
8: Yes, and it isn't just straight math. And if you look at, and do, do look at, at, at table four or five at some point when you feel like you have some free time to do that. But it's not just the size of the site multiplied by the low end of the density range 20.1 to the high end of the density range 30. There's something embedded in there called realistic development capacity, which actually reduces the number of low or moderate income units that we're, we're saying we could get from these sites. And that's important because the state doesn't, um, doesn't trust just, oh, this site is hundred acres. You multiply it, you're going to get this much. So embedded in all these numbers I shared with the council is a realistic development capacity assumption.
6: Okay. Um, and so, so like for this area that has predominantly um, many of our deed restricted low-income units, uh, I'm curious, how, how does that meet the definition of the goals uh, laid out in. I'm sorry, slide. I do appreciate these slides, by the way, a lot. Uh, I'm sorry. I lost my in here. Um, okay, the affirmative uh, furthering the fair housing. So, slide 29. So, if the goal is to. Uh, promote. So like overall, I mean, we, we even mentioned like Lagoon Valley. I don't know how many currently are a uh, very low income uh, design. Uh, I don't know if there's any zoning there that accommodates for very low income. Um, I don't know if, if you know off the, the, the top of your head.
8: There's some below moderate income units as part of that project. Not, not in the first guess. They're, they're required okay. as part of the policy plan.
6: Okay. So, uh, so overall, are we looking at it? Where's the limit that, the state defines or our policies define as um, it's still being acceptable to uh, place more low-income or very low-income units in a certain given area.
8: I think I'm gonna answer your question, maybe going in a different direction than you're asking it. And I'll come back to your specific question. One of the things that we sought to do in this housing element and in this site's inventory is to make sure that we have residential high density sites throughout the city, that they're not all in one part of the city. So that's part of why as I was going through the nine slides that show these different housing sites, a lot of those residential high density sites that are actually being created from commercial sites are dispersing that type of residential housing around the city and not just kind of concentrating it in one area. Uh, but these sites um, have been planned for high density, residential high density housing um, in the previous cycle they are in a neighborhood that has that kind of housing. And one could argue that development of new housing that's safe and sanitary and clean, and and i use the term sparkling, could further some of those objectives. Not all of them, not all of the affirmatively furthering fair housing objectives could, but definitely could have some positive benefits to to Vacaville.
6: And so if we place, uh, regardless of where it goes throughout our town, if we place uh, more high density units, does that take an account to the impact that it has on the school district that the, that, that particular um, parcel would be zoned within?
8: It, it really doesn't. Um, yeah, this is a housing planning exercise that um, is focused on meeting what the state tells us we need to meet. It's not focused on sort of that bigger picture um, thinking that you're, you're referencing.
6: Okay. And then, um, so this, does this also take into account to other existing low-income units in the area?
8: Yes, we have an inventory of all of our deed restricted sites. Um, and we also have programs about preserving their deed restrictions and making sure we're monitoring that so we don't lose that. Uh, we have, then we have other programs about improving the quality of our deed restricted and other other housing units.
6: So, okay. So I, I guess what I'm looking, I know you don't, I know it's not here, or I, I don't think it's here today. I apologize for wondering like that, but um, I'm curious to see how, what that distribution is throughout the town. The past data that I've seen, it's been predominantly in one given area. Um, the other question is, I know you mentioned, I know you mentioned that it, it um, you know, what's the likelihood of uh, developing the, these particular areas? What if, uh, what if it didn't agree with a, a zoning change that would allow for those arena numbers? So, like, say for example. Right here, uh, number 38. Right. So, if the community wanted that to be purpose for something different than high-density housing, that would also allow for community benefit per se. Uh, what um, would we have to? We would have to find those numbers elsewhere in
8: undeveloped land. we have to find a replacement site that was equivalent or better. Um, that's and that's that's actually was already part of state law. That's not a new requirement.
6: Okay. And then. Um, uh, the other question I have is uh, infill development. So none of this none of this would take into account uh, infill development. So let's say there's an existing, um, let's say there's one property that has 200 uh, units that are predominantly subsidized. If someone wanted to redevelop that um, to make, you know, maybe some type of mixed use or uh, different type of uh, housing options as far as deed restriction go or, you know, uh, going through the scale, very low-income, low-income moderate. Um, that is an indirect way to address the RENA, but not a direct way to re- address the RENA numbers.
8: Any new um, deed-restricted housing units that came out of a, like a substantial renovation of an affordable apartment complex, for example, those would count toward the city's RENA in the next cycle. And then any rehabilitation of deed-restricted units um, on the annual reporting that we do as a city every year, we would absolutely call that out as a a successful implementation of our housing programs, that we've renovated X number of units or X number of units were renovated as part of a specific project. So we would take credit for either new units, renovation or all of the, both those things.
6: So why can't we take credit for, why can't we look for existing developed residential units and target that for infill redevelopment to also uh, satisfy the counts for ARENA rather than uh, maybe some of these other approaches?
2: I'm going to actually ask
8: Jenny to explain some of the additional rigor and barriers that the state puts up to that sort of approach.
1: Sure. So um, those would be considered replacement units. So if you're taking out units that you currently have or trying to revitalize them, and there is such a steep hill to climb in terms of getting those to account. And also if you can, which means they have to have specific affordability, they have to have specific requirements per the units. If you're able to redevelopment, you also can only count 25% of your arena towards that if that is possible. And you have to actually show that this is going to happen, that there's funding, that there's a project in place that there's a timeline of all of those things. So they make it very challenging for you to count replacement units, and then you have to knock them off of what your total is. All
0: right, Thank you. Councilmember over Chapman.
9: Thank you for the report. Um, I will say that um, I have a lot to learn. However, at the very beginning of your presentation, you mentioned um, doing a land need um, survey per se and um and then from that from that point um, you went into creating your housing inventory and another comment you made was um some of the property owners may not decide to develop the property. However, you have identified that as as part of the uh, housing inventory that went on the report that went on to the state, that's gonna come back to us. How realistic is that? Because if you have property owners, you know, you survey them, oh yeah, you got, I have five acres, whatever, 100, whatever number of acres. And they may want to keep that in the family. Do you get that information early during that survey, but yet you count that in your inventory?
8: So my presentation covered actually two separate topics. and I wanna clarify that the earlier part of the presentation on growth management tools talked about the city's urban reserve evaluation, which is actually really separate and different from this state mandated process that I've kind of closed on with the discussion of the housing element. Um, but, but to your point, um, and actually in the last second to last round of comments from the state, as a city staff, we had to actually write up explanations of why some of these sites were likely to convert based on either us having private parties coming in to talk to us about developing a site, having received proposals on those sites. We had to actually prove a lot of those sites to the state based on information we had as a staff work. Many of my staff have worked here for more than 20 years basically working on, oh, you wanna do this with the site? Let's talk about that. So um, on the topic of property owners, we, we did a lot of outreach on the housing element, um, both virtual and at these um, study sessions, but we haven't talked to each and every property owner that's affected. Um, they will be notified um, when there's a, a general plan change happening on their property or a zone change, but, um, The main point with that is that if they don't want to change, they don't have to, but we've used the state's methodology to identify sites where we think housing could happen. And so our, as a city, if if this housing elements adopted, we've proven to the state, because they've actually said they agree with us that housing could happen. It does not mean that housing has to happen. And that's a very important aspect of housing element. It's a planning activity. It's not a doing activity as it relates to the actual building of housing units.
2: Um, the properties that you
9: have identified, um, I'm, I'm pretty much visualized. Uh, I know what the locations, I know the location. However, um, like in District 4, we don't need any more apartments. And when we're speaking of um, the low and the medium, you know we're usually looking at apartments, correct?
8: Not necessarily. We're, we're probably looking at some form of multifamily housing um, and that could be you know, townhouses or houses built for rent, um, which is a new uh, type of housing that's happening in our community. But a lot of the deed restricted affordable will be in the form of apartments because it's economical to build. And so if a site is really small, it's probably not lending itself to apartments, it's probably gonna lend itself to a different development type. I think the other thing to point out both for District 4 and elsewhere, is that a lot of times i talked about these sites as a group, because unless they're assembled into one one property, they're not really viable to develop independently and, and to build you know something that will actually achieve the housing.
9: Thank you.
0: Before I go to the vice mayor, for example, the properties that are on uh, oh, Monta Vista, there's two vacant sites been there. It's- I think the city there's a lot of different opportunities where there could be mixed use commercial drive-through not likely that you're going to just put a couple of apartments there a couple of houses there but for the purpose of the state's required exercise you can use that to identify and so you're just going through the exercise am i am i right with
3: that
8: Um, That's correct. Um, It is though interesting that as, especially as land values go up and as people are building housing, there are some smaller type projects that can get built. And one of the best examples is probably one of the ones we're working on right now. It's like a sweat equity habitat for humanity. Those types of housing developers will actually take on pretty small sites and will build, you know, either a, a trio of townhouses or a trio of small homes or whatever. So I would say, let's not count those sites out entirely, but yes, we look for sites like that, that we could plan as part of our uh, meeting arena.
0: Right, that was just a a comment where to go ahead and if you wanna answer it, because sometimes this is the problem is it's like, this is the state saying you're gonna do this and yet it's an exercise that they're not forcing us to build, Correct. but if somebody wanted to build there, then if it fell within that that, uh, allowance, then they could. This, to me, this is the, the problem in this whole exercise, because when I look at those, I just look at that one site and say, I would never want to see houses right there in the corner. I mean, that's, that's heavy traffic, shopping, but this is what the state's doing. And so we're going through this exercise.
1: Sure. I think one way that I try to paint the picture for you to look at this process is that this there is the exercise of the land inventory, which identifies all the opportunities as Aaron said, we went, you know, high, low nooks, crannies everywhere. So all of these show opportunities. It is not the job of the city to build these units. It's the job of the city to help facilitate the development of these units. Yes, you have set forth realistic capacity so that You can say that all of these sites are viable because of the zoning or the general plan designations and can accommodate housing. As a city, the staff will facilitate these programs to encourage and incentivize development through the planning department and the building department to help allow for this to, to occur. It is not the requirement. The city is not a developer. You do not build housing. You make these things available, and then you help facilitate the process of doing that. Also, we include more than enough sites in the land inventory, so that if there's a really great project, something that may be on those sites that you might think might work better, that with this surplus, meaning we have more than enough sites to meet the arena, there's a little bit of flexibility that you can approve these great projects and make more people happy by doing them and not just saying, well, we only have 2,500 units we have to meet and you have to meet every single one of those numbers. And so this gives you a little bit more room and flexibility to be able to do good planning over the next eight year period.
0: Thank you. Vice Mayor Weil.
2: Thanks for the information. Before I get to my question, I'm going to follow up on that as well. So on slide 31, it was my understanding that you said, you know, we have these, um, Sites Markham Avenue and Leisure Town and Vandantown Homes that have been on the previous housing elements. And so then if they've listed for several times and they're not used, it becomes easier for the builders to build these without going through the whole steps. So is there a danger then in identifying all these things as they were saying as housing? And then if there is a commercial building or something else that wants to go in, it would be difficult for us to say, oh, well, here, this would be great on that corner of Markham, but now we can't do it because it's designated as housing. Is that a fair statement or not?
8: We have flexibility, and it's actually because the, um, we have enough sites that give us flexibility. So we've proven to the state that a lot of our sites that are designated for commercial development could produce housing, but if we get a great commercial development, that's going to kind of remove that potential for housing to happen there, we would have the ability to approve that great commercial development. So um, we, it doesn't take away our flexibility um, on a lot of our commercial sites that were brought in as part of this housing element update. All right,
2: but so the three things listed on item, our slide 31, if there was, if there was some commercial site or some other use there, it wouldn't be hard to use it for that?
8: It, it would be possible to use it for that. The city would have the ability to make the decision to, to use it for commercial. Okay,
2: All right. So I do feel like it's a good idea to use the vacant property rather than keep building, you know, on the outskirts of town, because we you know, have a whole lot in district six, but um, I, so the vacant property is good. You did mention the one property where the furniture store was, so aside from that property, are there commercial buildings or anything on the other ones that you identified or all... yes, yes?
8: Yes, okay. uh, there was the one that has the old um, movie theater, the 99 cent store, another one that has sort of a kind of sparsely developed shopping center. So those sites are, are shown on the, those, the inventory sides in red because they're considered underutilized sites, meaning they have development on them, but we see potential for some housing on those sites
2: and doing something there would be different than as Council Member Silva said, taking down an old apartment and putting another apartment because we're not removing housing if we use those sites, is that correct?
8: Um, that site um, in particular, the site um, where the furniture stores are is designated for mixed use in the general plan. So it's kind of outside of the housing element, there's a requirement that when new development occurs, it needs to have a mixture of housing and commercial use. So that's because that general plan designation that's on that site is requiring that mixture of uses. We have a lot of sites that are currently commercial, designated for commercial, where they could be commercial or they could also add some housing, but they're not required to be mixed use like the uh, furniture store site is. I see,
2: so the other sites, our zone commercial. Correct. All right, so on um, slide 32, where you talked about following use by right, that was the same sort of thing that if we have sites, we we need to identify some place that we could put emergency shelters or residential care facilities or employee housing but there's no funding or anything for any of those things. Just here's where we could put it if someone wants to build it. Is that correct?
8: We have to establish a zoning district where each of these uses is allowed with no use permit, so no discretionary review. And then within the the 40 programs, and some of them talk about these things, there are also some additional steps we have to take. So if there's usually most of these have a package of things we're gonna do, but the first step is to change the zoning so that we have at least one zoning district where each of these uses is not, Discretionary.
2: And that's what you were saying, not all in one spot either. Correct. So that you were going to distribute them around the place. And again, it doesn't have to be built, it's just that we have identified a Correct. place where it could be built. All right. And then on slide 30, where it talked about the 40 programs, the 40 housing programs, and it said 40, 25% of the housing programs are continuing without modification, 50 are with modifications, and 25 are new programs. I might be confused here, but um, we got an email, I think, from Tom Filippi a while, like in, before our last meeting last week, and he just talked about submitting plans and then waiting quite some time to get them back, and then they were marked incomplete. And he said they weren't really incomplete. Everything was filled in, but the city just thought there were modifications. So that's not what this is. But can you address that?
8: Yeah, uh, that um, the email from Mr. Filippi was actually about the development review process, which ultimately implements the general plan and and whatnot. And he was taking issue with um, the time and the the, the manner and speed with which um, the staff from my department and others review the plans and um, determine whether or not we have everything we need. So in a nutshell, anytime someone files a new project in my department to develop something, we will give them comments in 30 days. Our first comment letter focuses on what more information do we need to take this project forward? We also set up the neighborhood meeting and do a bunch of other things. Uh, Mr. Filippi and I have been having a lot of spirited discussions about what is a complete application, how long should it take? But that's really separate from the housing programs I'm discussing this evening.
2: All right, it just made me think of that since we didn't address it last week. So, so um, and then my next question on slide 33, where we talked about residential high density going from 24 to 30, since we're now over 100,000 people, is that only on new projects going forward or because we have so many projects that are in the pipeline but that are not done yet, does that affect anything in those lines?
8: Approved projects do not need to comply with the general plan if it changes. They can, as long as they remain, have valid entitlements, they can build um, in accordance with what was approved. If they come in for um, an extension of time, like a development agreement amendment, other things like that, that can trigger the city looking at that. And do we want to extend this? Do we want it to change? How, how will this work? But if you have an approved entitlement, you can actually build it as long as it's valid um, and not have to up, up density it to make that happen.
2: All right. And then my, my last comment has to do with density as well. When we were flipping through those one of nine, two of nine, three of nine. You know, some of those numbers were on Vine Street area. And you just made the comment that, oh, well, this is going to maintain low density. So, and what's the reason that that would continue to be low density?
8: those um, sites um, in the vine street area are in very established neighborhoods where everything is developed at a very low density Um, residential estate i think is three units to the acre which is pretty darn low Um, those areas also have topography are not particularly close to shopping and services depending on which site we're talking about so when we were actually scouring the city both looking in every nook and cranny for sites but also looking at all of our existing sites they did, just did not seem appropriate for higher density housing. So staff did not recommend that. Um, and also they have some infrastructure challenges. They have some, you know, kind of deficient roadways in some cases or roadways that are more country, country standards. So those are the factors that we evaluated when we were looking at those sites.
2: I said last question, but here's one more then. So, so the only other thing that you have, like the Lagoon Valley area, was that behind the Ranch Hotel? So yes. is, there's nothing else out there that would be ever slated for this than the housing element?
8: At present, Lower Lagoon Valley has approvals and is moving forward with building what they've got approved. So we did not look at making changes there. Um, introducing the site at the current business park designation to housing was really about trying to, thinking about the housing strategy and a lot of the council discussion about trying to put high density sites throughout the city. Uh, that site looked like a good way to do that.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: And uh... Quick question. You mentioned that the planned growth ordinance is suspended until 2034. Can you just explain what that is and why?
8: It's been suspended since March 10th of 2020. Um, and Under our housing program, um, we'll be bringing council an item to resuspend it through 2034. Vacaville's um, plan growth ordinance is very similar to other cities' plan growth ordinances, which is this idea that um, the council decides, okay, every year we're gonna have a certain number of housing units that can be built. And we're gonna allocate that number of units to projects. And we're gonna have staff in, particularly in the building division, which is one of mine here, monitor how many building permits are being issued and we will not exceed the number of allocations on the annual basis. And then part of that is reporting. Every year, or every half a year, we're gonna receive a report from our staff about how we're not exceeding our allocations. So we had that ordinance, um, we did track everything. It turned out, I don't think there was any year where there weren't enough allocations to cover the housing that was trying to be built in the building permit process. Taking away that ordinance, suspending it, complies with state law it's unclear to me what, if any, effect it really will have on, on development.
0: Uh, so it's dependent because of state law, yes. but that law has a sunset then? Yes.
8: yes.
7: Okay, all right. Council Member Stockton. Yes, thank you for the presentation. I'm enjoying this series. I'm looking forward to the additional conversations that we have on everything that affects what we're talking about. Uh, are we gonna talk about objective standards before July 1st, when the new, some of these new, I think it's Senate Bill 6 and AB 2011 take effect. Or is that gonna be part of the May 8th or 9th conversation or when are we gonna talk about that?
8: Uh, Thank you, Council Member Stockton. I definitely aware there's an interest in this item. Uh, The city manager and I have not figured out exactly when to bring it to the council. Uh, but the good news is myself and two of our planning commissioners attended the league's planning commissioners conference and got a great training about objective standards how to structure them what they can do what they can't do so whenever we can find a time to bring this to the the council um i'm happy to do that
7: okay i'm just very interested in it because it sounds like we've lost all control i mean even the property owners for that point or the people who own the adjacent properties next to some of these properties um, until we have those objective standards, it's really hard for me to provide some sort of um, comfort for the people who are living and not knowing what's going to be next door to where they're raising their families. Um, it sounds to me like all the, all the properties that have been identified today um, can all be, are either already zoned high density or would the city would allow them to build them high density if the property owner chose to go that route. Um, would they be under the current law and some of the, you mentioned uh, in some of the slides, I forgive me, I, I don't have it noted down. Would they be, I know they would not be prevented from building their high density project, but would they also be exempt from CFDs and some of the other things that the surrounding neighbors are having to pay?
8: With the certified housing element and with um, even under current laws, the city retains a great deal of, not a great deal. We retain some control over those issues. We have policies and programs that require um, CFDs landscape and lighting landscape and lighting maintenance districts and other uh, mechanisms. Um, so I think that we still have a ability to get those things as part of development.
7: Okay, and then my last question is related to objective standards. can they be object can objective standards be based upon Surrounding zoning or um, populations or within a certain geographical area, i'm just I'm just trying to figure out how these things work because I get a ton of questions about you know how can we protect the people who live next door to some of these s b three thirty projects and other places?
8: Um, I definitely would like to bring uh, the council a presentation on this. The main thing objective standards do is allow the city to have additional design controls to require maybe greater setbacks from um, property lines in the case maybe where you have like a residential adjacency or greater setbacks um, at at higher levels when you are on certain kinds of streets they don't they're not really a tool for they're not a tool for stopping housing but they're a tool for shaping the form that housing takes because essentially we can craft objective standards that require people to build the form of the housing that we will find to be compatible with our neighborhood so that's what this presentation I will eventually be bringing will yeah. go over is, is how that tool can help us on the well, design side
7: i'm curious to know if it can be site specific or neighborhood specific or if it has to just be objective to the city at as a whole.
8: I don't want to spoil the future presentation, but you can structure it at least three different ways, according to the lovely person that did the presentation at the league conference. And I'd be happy to bring the council more information on that.
0: I know that we're all going to want to see that. Um, I don't see any other lights. However, I will be opening up to the public real quick though. uh, I saw something in that very, very, thick document about um, some of the standards that might have to change in one in particular was uh, parking that it would reduce it from once one parking spot to 0.5 parking spot how does that really fit into um, trying to help development and then not create other problems I'm not sure how you're gonna answer that
8: one. Oh, thank you for the question, Mr. Mayor. And in one of the original drafts of the housing element, we had some sort of wishy-washy language about explore revising the city's parking requirements for studios. And that was one of the mandated edits we got is no 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 you can't just explore it you have to do it and so we didn't sign ourselves up for comprehensive parking reductions we were able to propose reducing it for studios and the state found that to be acceptable we do have another parking another program that has us looking at all of our parking standards but it's not one of the ones we have to do immediately going back to like how housing is built though most people that build studios are not gonna underpark them because if you're building a studio apartment and you're gonna rent it to someone, they're gonna have a car and they're not going to enjoy being told, okay, you get this half of the space and your neighbor gets the other. So in some ways, I, I really, my experience tells me that the private market has a greater regulatory factor on parking that gets provided than the state of California.
0: I just saw that, I thought that was pretty strange because everyone seems to have some mode of transportation here, so. Councilmember Member
10: Sorry, I, I was slow to the button. Um, <clears throat> oh, <hi. clears throat> okay. Thank you for the presentation. It, it was amazing. I, I was really trying to take in my fellow council members and the mayor's comments um, relating to this. You know, I, one thing my notes kind of may grab is the fair housing, the housing mix, and stratification of housing. Like, that's a hard task. Because we can have a lot of land around the city, but it's private, private property. If it doesn't pencil out, they, they won't have a motivation to, to kind of go forth and develop. So, <clears throat> in order to kind of create that housing mix around Agapille, to have different densities, not just be um, kind of straddled in Councilman Silva's district or disproportionately in another district, it's, I think, the only way forward is going to have to be to have a really unique way to either have a blend of multi kind of mixed use. So therefore maybe a developer could look at um, different densities and to offset the lower units with the higher units with keeping some kind of net lease um, on the rental units below that would offset the ability to have the XYZ units at a lower cost without taking a hit. Because they're not gonna build it; they're gonna lose. So they have to figure out how can we go forward? And a lot of cities are doing exactly that. I'm making these sub city centers um, where the, mid, the density is tight, so therefore the cost of build is achievable, but therefore they didn't have built-in amenities in close proximity, because you can't all of a sudden cram people in this development say, good luck getting groceries. So, like, that is actually a strategy to help achieve the affordable housing that other cities are using. It's so, like I, that little area in like, Leisure Town, you know, the low housing has stigmas, but really that is so vital in Leisure Town as we see Green Tree and what's going forward, that small property, there's a high use for high density with the yards inside, they don't need that. Like, rather be in the community that have, um, have, have, <clears throat> sorry my voice, to have, have travel outside, oh, it's better now, travel outside. And I think the only way we're gonna, we're gonna approach that is having that higher density um, with the cost of everything, except I mean, everything's going up, they will not be able to build. They will sit vacant if we don't find a way to kind of accept and blend the high-density throughout Vacaville. Um, I, I think, like, the Longstro CVS, depending on how long you live in Vacaville, you call different things. Like, that is an amazing site that kind of bookend the 700 Park to there. And I think always going to pencil out is to really make it become a, little, a entrance to the downtown Pacific plan with that housing. They got to create rent to offset, they're gonna take a hit on the lower units. It won't pencil out the cost of construct, the cost of funds. So I think really like thinking about how important like the mixed use is or to go forward is the only way. Um, The housing for military is pretty awesome. You know, because we saw the different levels that they are able to get the ranking, but there's still military housing for the unlisted. So we can't forget about the people that serve the community of Travis that are not they're not, they're not enlisted, they will have a different income source. They deserve to kind of live in the same proximity to the base that our our enlisted personnel does. So I think having those units that's to that support maybe a three bedroom townhouse, where they're each getting twenty five hundred dollars per person, they could pay for higher cost. They can they will actually be okay with paying a higher rent for those luxury style townhomes or units in the same complex as they know yeah maybe a maintenance worker that works at Travis doesn't make my ranking but therefore they deserve to have the same quality of living and amenities and proximity to the work that I do so I think when I I saw that military housing I thought it was pretty amazing it's not just to be one big block it looks kind of like some other developments it's going to be diversified to make sure like you'll have officers and staff The same building without having the the others affect. So sorry and sorry my voice. Thank you. I'm
0: going to open it up to the public. Anyone wishing to speak on this on this item come forward. (laughs) I gotta say Vacaville continues to have impressive staff So I have two questions. First is, is there a mechanism or a way to recover the cost of the required specialized staff that we need to hire, being that federal and state government love to uh, impose unfunded liabilities? The second question I have is, how do I read this report, the coding, that I understand that there will be senior housing that accommodates the peculiar needs of senior citizens for their environment and safety and transportation to realistic, realistic transportation to the services they need. Thank you. Thank you. And, and uh, I'm not sure if you want to make a comment, I will start with a comment. And that is, as I had just written down senior housing and you look at the opportunities and I'm sure as you and your staff did this, you probably Considered, well, what could go here and uh, and I I saw some of those sites and Really just affords the opportunity element would occur But the the arena numbers aren't required for the city to meet punitively They're required to show that we could achieve it Uh, I'm gonna just continue to open this up to the public if there was anyone else that wanted to speak I think you rounded it out tonight. So thank you very much. Um, My first question, uh, this is that it just seems like a lot of unfunded mandates and it'd be really good to see what what kind of pressures that's been put on staff through this. It'd be good exercise. Council Member Silva started with a a, a question that I thought was really good and I'm just gonna kind of add to it. Um, When we had the housing strategy that was really put forward the effort from council and the housing element. Can you, can you if in your, your best ability, kind of summarize what you see that the city isn't getting what it wanted because the state is uh, acting as a judge in this and telling us what we have to do. What are we giving up?
8: Summarize. Realizing I don't really need a slide for this. Um, the city's housing strategy was focused broadly on housing at every income level. And and to be frank um, and very clear, Vacaville has always um, overproduced in the above moderate category. So we're, we're doing more than our fair share in that category. But our housing strategy looked at housing from low paid workers that work in some of our top five industries to the executive looking for a home in Vacaville. So they actually live here and spend their money here. So we kind of covered housing across the whole spectrum. I would just say the housing element forces us to be at least to satisfy the state much more narrowly focused. And it's still focused on a good thing. Again, looking at folks who are below um, moderate income. We talked about that the last time, family of four making less than $108,000 is below moderate income. So it's it's a housing element, but it is very focused on the lower income um, housing production, and it's very focused on those housing programs that that address those needs. And so our housing strategy, I don't think it, the state stopped us from having a great housing strategy, but our housing strategy has a much bigger um, bigger picture. It just turns out that a lot that the goals and programs of the housing strategy were pretty easy to weave into the housing element because there's definitely a connection between our big picture and maybe what I would call the state's smaller focus picture.
0: And moving forward, um, my view of, of the, the smart way to grow, knowing that we do need to have a workforce, especially as we're looking at economic development, for the types of living experiences that they want. We know when we go somewhere like One Lake or other, other jurisdictions to say, wow, I'd love to live here. And it, it has that combination of high density, but the, the living experience. And so I certainly would hope is that if, if we do have to accept some of the mandates, through this process and that some of these things do occur by right and they may end up in a neighborhood that is already oversaturated with, uh, with low income housing and high density, that we, we continue to as staff and as council be able to work with developers and say, help us develop what we want here, right? We wanna make sure that those who are continuously getting pushed out of the ability to afford, especially our, our, our senior community, Rents are going up, their, their pay is not commensurate with, with rents around here, just high level of rents. And I know we heard recently, um, a member of the public who commented at the last special council, that is, so we, have a, we have a bubble, we have a demand. It was in the, the local paper here recently that here we are, we have this, this enormously overpriced community because we're part of the nine Bay Area counties in ABAG. And we're at, I think in 2020, somewhere between 550 and 600,000 is the median home price. And yet six of the other nine are between 1 million and 1.5 million. And so here we are at the lower end, we know it's happening. The Bay Area moved here and they continue to move here. And so I I do see that this from the state's perspective, and we know that we need to support Housing uh, for all, so that people who want to live here can and provide quality. At the same time, this arena is saying that 42% of all homes or uh, multi family um, through this arena this process, 42% is very low income or low income. And it's just, I'm just looking at this and, and posing a question. When this crisis is over and the bubble is over, what will we have created and will it? reflect what we really want or will it reflect what the state's mandating and making it look like we're all looking the same way and we're all very different. And so it's just from my perspective a commitment to care for the people who can't afford it and work diligently and strategically like last time. And and knowing that not every one of these developments are going to get developed, but we, we certainly meet the objective, congratulations, it sounds like that's I mean that is a good thing to to get out from underneath the state that it's a rigorous process when you look at all the, re, the, the redlining and the, and the revisions. Um, I had, um, just from your perspective, I wanted to ask you your experience going through RENA 6 versus RENA 5. Can you explain just the, the, the level of demand that's
9: shifted from your perspective?
8: I'm going to be a little bit concise. It was very difficult to get a certified housing element in Rena 5. And now when I look back, I look back at that time very fondly. Um, Just the level of scrutiny is just much higher the quantified objectives are much more numerous and stringent. And every time we tried to use not not to get away with anything, just like soft language, like explore a program, and we're going to do it by 2026. The state came back and said, "You will do this program, and you're going to do it by 2024." So, it, it's it's been quite a quite a journey to get to
0: that. And that's program. what it looked like. It said it, it took all the discretion out. Consider explore. No, gone. So, um, with that, there's another question up here, Councilmember Silva. I want to pull up on that
6: that point or that discussion point so <clears throat> whatever was listed in a previous edition should we be so that cost is going to come down to our own local taxpayers right so should we be very mindful of how much we how we shape what we discuss to where we kind of put ourselves in a box for future anticipated future um mandates from the state that say you now we need now we need to see these documents you need to hire these no no offense you need to hire these third-party consultants bring them in do their studies and meet the what we
8: propose. That's been an overarching comment from many of the council, the leadership of the mayor. Um, We will put together some thoughts on that about the cost of implementing um, the housing programs over the next couple years and and be able to present at least at a high level to the council on June 27th. But I have to say, um, we're still, I'm sure we'll be recommending that the council adopt this housing element and sign us up for the 40 programs.
6: I I guess that maybe then the request would be and this should just be a standard. How do we simplify what we're putting out? How do we simplify the information um, in uh, that way? One, it's just more uh, accessible and transparent to the public, but two, uh, for these other reasons that are, that we keep
0: keep putting ourselves in a hole. Just one last uh, I'm, this is my last question. Is there any other density um, triggers? In other words, this goes to 30, but in, in the lengthy document, there, there were times when it referenced you know upwards of 40 or 100. Can you explain what that is?
8: Uh, yes, with the adoption of our downtown specific plan, we have sites that as I recall, the upper limit is 65 units to the acre. Um, it, in my professional experience, many, several of these sites don't really lend themselves to that high level of density, but that's why there's a range. And in the downtowns, a broad range—it's 18 units of the acre to 65 units of the acre on many of those sites. So it gives flexibility for someone, as I think Councilmember Richie was saying, they're trying to make a project work. They're trying to do a variety of income levels. There is a theoretical project that could be quite dense, but that theoretical project will also go through a development review process.
0: Well, thank you for this comprehensive. Uh, process and, uh, and though it's been complicated, but I, I do Councilmember Ritchie has another question.
7: I'm gonna try. I'm gonna tr-
10: <clears throat> try Okay. Better. Um, thanks so much. I, I thank you. Thank you, Mary Carley. Um, what you said is it, it, it spurred the call we have last week. It kind of ties right into the density. And I just want to kind of put it in perspective. Um, Vacaville is not unique. Like we are facing across the nation, mostly California, or the whole nation, a phenomenon. It's a financial phenomenon to where it's called a lockdown. We have a supply and demand scarcity problem, not because we're not building. It's because you have a cost of funds. It's creating the fact that we have 79 units in Vacaville that for sale. The average is 250. Is that a Fact that we just destroyed houses or we didn't build them no it's what's happened all throughout america rome powell bought an immense amount of mortgage securities and treasuries he brought down the mortgage rates to a point where we have an exorbitant amount of californians and factual residents that raised in the twos and threes they are not moving they're staying still so therefore they are not allowing uh, the movement of real estate in our city in our county and our state. The cost of funds have risen so dramatically to fight off inflation, that's not allowing developers to financially pencil out developments to build, to rent and build to sell. We have a slowdown in development to relieve the valve on one end, and we have the inability for someone to want to sell to move up or move down to clear room. Now, the tax base isn't the problem because they can, tr- they can think Prop 1920 resolve that it's purely a cost of funds issue we have. So I, can, I just want to be really constant. Like it's not this magic things happening. We can identify exactly what's going on. So it's, we can do all this homework, all these, all the studies and and lie and get ready for verification, But until it pencils out and individuals have the right. To stay or move, we can't force someone to sell. And that's not a net change. If someone in Vacaville moves from one house to another neighborhood, we're not, that's not creation, that's just movement. So we need to allow for the markets and economy to come down to motivate developers to want to add inventory, to allow them to exit, to attain a new home, and let someone else come into their existing home. It's like, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon that can be explained. It's, it's, so it's, it's not this frustrating thing, I think, for, for me and hopefully everybody else, but there's certain things we can't control. Like, I don't want to get in a frustrated fight or trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. Like, there are certain things we cannot do and we cannot affect. So, I think we should really plan with the objective standards to make sure when it comes back down, we are lined up in the city of Vacaville so there are people who understand the diminishing power we have at this local level. We can grab hold to make sure that these developments will adhere to the values and desires that our residents want but once the cost of funds goes down they're going to build because they want to make money and we got to make sure the product that comes to us is what we want but i just i want to put that out there it's the demand issue is not this mysterious thing it's just it's just the cost of funds is really out of whack
0: thank you and uh, with that just i want to say thank you for um taking on all these questions and Mr. City Manager.
7: Thank
3: you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to just throw in a quick comment. So as someone who in in my 35 year career, um, I've been directly involved or directly responsible for uh, three housing elements. And I gotta tell you that um, in checking in regularly with uh, Ms. Morris and Ms. Cantu uh, about this particular topic, uh, things have changed dramatically. It, 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 I can't believe the level of, of scrutiny that is um, the state has put on us. And you're feeling that pinch in a variety of different ways on everything related to housing. And so, first of all, I just want to acknowledge Ms. Morris and Ms. Cantu and their incredible staffs that have been working on this. It is a big chore. And as we pointed out to, to you several times tonight, there's a lot more work to be done. And I also want to acknowledge Ginny and her work. She and I actually work together on housing element in another jurisdiction. He is very talented and and one of the best out there on this subject. And so um, I I think the work that you see before you is is excellent work. And we're trying to make the best of the situation that we have. And to the gentleman's comments about our staff, yes, we do have very talented staff. And I will just tell you all that, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a caring and passionate standpoint, they truly care the entire, both of those departments truly care about um, housing for this community. And so to Councilman Silva's point about making it easy and getting the word out there, I'm confident that you know both departments are, have that at heart and in mind um, moving forward. Um, I'd also like to compliment the council. I've worked with many councils on this subject that have much more experience up there at the dais than this group has combined and struggled with this particular subject when it was much simpler, where it was just, yeah, you know, kind of do this, kind of do that. And the topics that you're having to wrestle with are extremely challenging and difficult. Um, and the questions that you've asked tonight show me that you, you're you getting it and you're asking the right stuff to pre- prepare us going forward with these challenges. Um, I will just say that, you know, with regards to some of the things that you're talking about like senior housing and everything, we do have more conversation coming on that because as was pointed out several times tonight, we do not build housing. Um, the market does that. And so if we want something to come, much like we're doing in our non-residential sector. We're going after bio and advanced manufacturing with strategies. We're going to have to do the same thing for residential product types. And that's where you're going to get into the discussion about inclusionary and incentivizing and those kinds of things. So if the council's wanting a particular type of product, residential product, we're going to have to have that conversation to make that happen. But um, again, I just wanted to compliment our staff and the council. This is a hard topic. And um, I appreciate that we're rallying together on it and moving forward because uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think that it's clear that um, despite all the outside forces and efforts that are trying to make everyone put a square peg in a round hole up and down the entire state, which just doesn't work. um, We're watching out for making sure that we comply. And to Ms. Morris's point about, you know, when we bring this document to you in June, um, well, it may feel like biting your teeth a little bit and gritting your teeth because some of this stuff just feels like, oh, they're making me do what I don't want to do. But it's really imperative that we do walk away with an approved housing element because that makes us eligible for all those different funding opportunities out there that will make these things happen that do have the potential, um, to make a difference in our community and meet that workforce housing, to meet those special need housing that we've been. Talking for so many different meetings. And so um, I look forward to when we bring that back to you and have those conversations, but again, thank you to staff and to the council for your uh, active participation and and your, thank you. Thank you.
0: And thank you for
3: your, for your
0: time. Well, with that, we'll move to uh, item 10, report to the city manager.
3: That's me. Okay. So um, I just wanted to, you know, in the spirit of acknowledgement, I wanted to acknowledge an event that happened a couple of weeks ago. It was our fourth uh, annual cleanup day. Uh, we held this on April 15th in district six. And um, as you can see, we had a, a bunch of different volunteers and Ms. Morris, if you can advance it to the next slide. This by far t- um, to date was our most successful in terms of amount of stuff done and and, um, added to the community, but also taken away, which is one of our big goals in terms of cleanup and and adding value and putting back in. So as you can see, just real quickly, uh, lots of volunteers, lots of materials that were added into the neighborhood to enhance and beautify the the, uh, homes out there. And then uh, almost 30,000 tons of trash was removed. So um, I want to thank our our team out there that is actively involved in picking up that program and running with it. Um, This is about numbers at times, but it's also about establishing community pride. And I think that, you know, that's something that I'm very happy to to be a part of for um, our organization, getting out there. It's part of our COV Connect program that we created, you know, coming out of the pandemic to show the community that we are here we are listening, we are part of you, we are part of the neighborhoods and we're getting our sweat equity and our resources financial as well um, to invest in improving the neighborhoods. And so I wanna thank everybody out there that participated not only just from the city, but those volunteers who came out from your groups and just individuals and some of the council members, thank you, um, whether you were at this one or at others. Again, this was number four. Um, we're are doing two a year. So if you miss this one, we'll have another opportunity later this year for you to join us. So thank everybody there. And secondly, uh, although I don't have a slide for it and I apologize for missing, um, the events took me away from it, but I understand that uh, this weekend's Back Con was a huge success. I can't tell you how many compliments I heard about that uh, event. It continues to grow and grow and bring more people from out of the area, in the area It is just a very exciting event uh, that is putting back a bill on the map. And um, we look forward to next year's and your continued support council. We thank you very much for, for both of your, your support for both of those events. So with that, uh, I'll just say, thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, want to comment on that? Um, okay, I'm a council member Chapman wanted to make thank a
9: comment you. Um, I, I need to apologize. I had signed up to be at the citywide cleanup the, that day. Yeah. And um, I have to share this. It was on my calendar. However, I thought it was our vice mayor's uh, day. And so I had an engagement earlier that morning. And then when I got out of there, I called Vice Mayor Wiley, uh, got her machine and I left the message. Where are you? Where are you right now? And since she didn't answer, I called another lady that I knew would be in attendance. And uh, she said, Sarah, wrong day. I was so, so ashamed. I mean, so I apologize. Please tell Jill uh, I promised to be at the next one. It was on my calendar. And I actually... I, She's my witness, she can verify that I called and left a message for her, where are you? I'm coming, I'm on my way, (coughs) didn't get an answer. However, um, thank you for the update this evening and I will share that over the weekend, I was able to, or I judged at BeccaCon and that was, (laughs) that was exciting. (laughs) It really was well attended. And so if you need me again, just give me a ring. Thank you. Oh, yes. Um,
0: this is a, we're, we're not even moving down for reports on the city council because this is a good topic. Um, council member Stockton.
7: Is um, <laughs> council comments correct?
0: Yeah, we're moving to council
7: comments. I just wanna make sure I was in the right uh, spot. Um, I, I had the pleasure to attend the COV event. I have to tell you, that was one of the best We Are Vacaville moments that I've experienced on the council. Our staff, Is so incredible. So many people that are sitting in the audience right now were out there shoveling that rock, building fences, talking to neighbors, throwing stuff away. Um, It was so contagious. Even though there were 60-something people that signed up, so many people came out of their houses, saw what was going on, and just grabbed a shovel or a rake or something and helped out. Absolutely amazing. So um, thank you for that um, very humbling experience being out there Uh, Jill did a great job. Reggie was out. uh, I mean, there's so many of you that are out here that were out there. So thank you so much for that. Um, The the last thing that I wanted to just kind of like put out there is we're talking a lot about housing. We've had some kind of contentious projects that have come up. And I think it's so important that the community or the public has the ability to provide some input. More than anything, I believe that our, you know, the public as well as the development can. Uh, community is entitled to realistic expectations and a fair process. And I'm committed to making sure that we have that, but I don't know that we'll get there unless we get the input um, from everybody and all the stakeholders that are involved. And so I just, I really appreciate the dialogue um, that we had here as a council today. It is uh, very apparent that everyone that spoke today from the dais or from the public is concerned about making sure that we keep our community identity, as well as um, plan for healthy growth in the future that that encompasses the um, you know the spirit of Vacaville that we all love um, and enjoy here. So, I just if you have comments, if you have concerns, if you you know you own property that you're interested in developing or want to bring businesses to Vacaville, we're here to hear you. You could reach out to any anyone on this council. Uh, And I have faith that anyone that is sitting up here would be engaged in a conversation and happy to hear from you about how we can um, make Vacaville a great place to live for everyone and build great things and be excited to see what's being built next door and not terrified of it. So um, thank you all for that. And that's all I have. Thank you. Uh, Council Member,
0: excuse me, um, Vice Mayor Wiley.
2: Well, I will also talk a little bit about the district day uh, cleanup because it was in district six. And I want to do a shout out to our fire marshal, Jill Childers, and her code compliance team, because they went door to door several times. And I went with them because I was not able to be there on that Saturday. And the people were very happy to talk to us and say, oh, at first they were kind of reluctant, like, you want to do what? You want to fix this for me for nothing? But we said it was, you know, for the city. And so there was a lot of people who participated. And Needham Street is just one street. And to get uh, 29,000 tons of, no, pounds, tons, 29,000 tons of trash and other debris from that was quite a record. I did not answer uh, Council Member Chapman's phone call because I was in the Amazon. Otherwise, I would have been on Needham Street. Um, but it was a quite, quite an, an adventure. So I do want to say that um, coming up, on May 6th, there was a District 6 cleanup day because the people in our area were happy and interested in having a cleanup after the first city citywide event. So if anyone has two hours to give on Saturday, May 6th, you can see me about volunteering. And we'll have five different debris bins across District 6, and neighbors can bring things. And last year, we had a very successful day as well. This year, if you come and volunteer, you'll get a hot dog from a District 6 hot dog vendor, Holy Moes. And um, so all that information is here. If you, May 6th is a very busy day, but you could come early starting at 8.30 or stay late till 4.30. So that's my District 6 thing. And then I also wanted to say a little bit about VacaCon because I was really happy to be there and I had a exhibitor booth as well. And it was really easy working with the Parks and Rec Department and the whole thing worked very smoothly. And I'll shout out also to the marketing group because when people came to my table, I said, oh, where are you from? Oakland. Oh, where are you from? Napa. Where are you from? Sacramento. Where are you from? Fairfield. Where are you from? Vacaville. I said, oh, you're from Vacaville. So there were a lot of people that came and everyone was excited to be there and was having a great time. And there was a wide variety of events there for people. So a great event to uh, Director Hubbard and the rest of your team. And then I also went to, since I'm on the draft Committee with Travis Regional Armed Forces Committee, we have meetings usually once a month, but this time it was good that uh, our community director, Aaron Morris was there and several people from the planning department. So it's really good when Vacaville can be involved and the base has a lot of things going on right now and um, a lot of things. So it's just supporting our base is important. It's mine.
0: Thank you, council member Silva.
6: Thank you. Um, so, uh, just kind of recapping a uh, few weeks ago, there was a, I attended a a, a jazz festival, a USO fundraiser at Jepson. Um, there was one uh, trumpet, trumpeter uh, that was pretty phenomenal, Shepard. So, I just want to let, let him know that I see that, I see a lot of potential in him. So, I keep it up. Um, <clears throat> and uh, kind of beyond that, in the jazz festival, uh, we'll be kick, we'll be going again uh, later on this year, um, and then uh, just this more more so for the council members, uh, they had asked you know asked for you know some help with the uh, funding for that, um, but I uh, I'm going to suggest to them to reach out to all of us. Uh, one of the great things about the jazz festival, kind of similar to the same concept, is that it does bring a lot of folks uh, from around the entire region. Um, it also helps honor our uh, veterans and current active uh, military members. Um, it also allows opportunity for youth um, to develop uh, and foster that that particular that art, right? That music as an art. So seeing the dedication that it takes uh, for individuals to play instruments is pretty. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of work ethic in there that I personally value, and um, just kind of putting that out there. But uh, either way, just for us to attend, I, I think they would all appreciate it. Um, today, uh, actually, Easterly toward the Easterly Water Wastewater Treatment Facility. And uh, that place is—it's always amazing. I did want to extend, and this may be more so for the council. Uh, one of the comments that was made, and, and they didn't—they didn't know my capacity when I was there as a professor, but uh, they mentioned that how supposedly um, they, they mentioned that uh, how appreciative they were of our, of our city uh, past councils that invested in the infrastructure that has there. Um, and their experience working here compared to other wastewater treatment facilities uh, in itself was, um, uh, they can definitely tell the quality, the quality of difference in that. And I know that also helps protect the surrounding residents in that area. So um, uh, I really enjoyed that, just learning how how the process works and seeing how, particularly how microbes are involved in all of that. Um, So I just want to also thank the staff for their time, uh, you know, educating the future workforce on what they provide and the service they provide. Uh, tomorrow morning, eight thirty at the Lattice uh, Community Center, uh, we'll have a listening session. It's focused for focused on small businesses. So All small business owners, representatives are welcome. It's open to the public, so really anybody can come. Um, I know we're limited on on electives that can attend, but uh, that's really just centered on understanding the challenges that small business owners have had and what opportunities that exist. And so uh, happy to report back with what comes with that next time around. Sunday, the April 30th from 1 to 4 p.m. is the third annual BU event. Uh, so this is something that was uh, organically uh, created uh, three years ago uh, to focus on bringing together uh, folks with different unique needs, uh, or quote-unquote special needs. Uh, it'll be the first event, I believe, at the BU park. Um, a lot of folks uh, expecting to come out. Um, I do I, I did hear some comments publicly about concerns about um, that particular uh, park and other kids uh, kind of um, maybe limiting the access to those who, who it was designed for. So I'll be kind of curious to see how that goes on, but this is really my plea uh, to all of us as individuals and my plea to the community, uh, particularly parents, uh, to pe- please be mindful and respectful um, and educate our kids uh, of, of the impact that we have and the choices that we make and and how that impacts or can restrict the ability for other kids to enjoy something that uh, they haven't always had access to. So uh, as much as I think we can come together as a community and and, um, help each other be aware of uh, our choices and the impact it has on others,
0: I I think uh, we can all appreciate that.
10: Thank you. Council Member Richie. I thank you so much. Um, Try to keep this nice and concise. Uh, Actually, today I had the great opportunity to do a presentation with the amazing help of Aaron Morris and Don Burris. Um, and it really kind of ties in, it was to a large group that was uh, real estate professionals here in VACA, trying to educate them on really trying to bring a large portion of our community to understand the heavy lift that the city staff has when it comes to developing housing element, what is housing element, how it incorporates the city, what is the general plan, what's the specific plan and how it all comes together. So therefore these aha moments, people have their understanding that listen, there's a lot of work. It's not just possible like a route, something develops a vacuum. There's so many policy procedures and protocol that lead up to that development. It was really good education. The room was dead silent. No one was on their phone. Everyone had just attention span. It was pretty amazing, um, but it, t- it ties in. Um, when it comes to like what I, s- two slides in that really emphasize kind of the passion. I think a lot of the council we all feel about. <laughs> Vacaville being amazing. Um, it was new to me. The net inflow and outflow of people that leave Backville every single day for employment. It's almost 30,000 people a day leave Vacaville to go work somewhere else. And almost the same number come into Vacaville. You know, as we develop smartly, as we develop the right product, don't run into it. I really wish that we'd make an emphasis that economic development is so important. Like we need to really focus on Vacaville residents having the financial literacy, having the education to be able to attain the jobs in Vacaville, so they're not leaving. We really, really need to emphasize if we're going to grow and do and bring biotech companies here. We got to not increase the inflow of people that have the skill set. They're traveling to Vacaville. We need to really enhance the people that live in Vacaville through. I, any means necessary of education, classes, courses, to get our city residents the ability to take these jobs. I mean, the overall kind of synergy that would create to have a reduction of people leaving Vacaville for employment would be huge. That's tax dollars that they do the lunch breaks downtown in our facilities. The amount of money and we would get as a city by investing in education and keeping these people working in our community is huge. Every single day, 30,000 people choose to eat somewhere else. Buy gas somewhere else. Spend somewhere else that could be reduced. And while they will increase their income, they will go from this unit to buy the next home that creates property taxes. There's so many. Kind of a butterfly effects benefits by really making sure that as we, as we grow, we, we, we stop depending of on people that are coming into our city thirty thousand a day. If we can limit that to people that are from Vacaville to work in Vacaville jobs, that have a huge effect. So that really touched me uh, where Silva's always, is talking about education, making sure we have opportunities for our our community. It's very paramount to kind of reduce that net net inflow outflow. So we keep the tax dollars here and just really create a pride. And people are gonna treat Vacaville different if they're living here, working here, and they're gonna spend their dollars in the community. I think I get my voice to handle it. The second was last Friday, I got a text message. Um, Thursday night, it was from um, my amazing friend called brother. Another mother. I'm actually Godfather's kids, uh, Joseph John Hunter. He's from Vacaville. And he was in cooperation working with the city of. Uh, Vacaville fire department. He is in Sacramento. They're doing a training. So I surprised him. I snuck in with the next class as much as I could. I'm, I'm not a small person but I, I snuck in with the class and I sat down and I was able to like really just kind of pretend until he noticed me of what our firefighters are doing by educating themselves. It's like the real test of a champion is what people, what they do when no one's looking allows them to be amazing when everybody's on the stage. And like, they were in that classroom and they were just studying the most, I mean, the most nerdy fire stuff. I mean, they were passionately just doing these classes and coursework that we would never have known. was like, but when you get that call, they're, they're there to be tactical and do their job at the highest level. And the, like those are things that I, I don't think we highlight enough, but I just really want to appreciate like, Seeing that was five minutes of that classroom showed me how much they do that we don't see. And I, I know our, our police department has say the same thing. The trainings are amazing. It's like, it's it giving me a glimpse in like really um, what they're doing to make sure that they, uphold this standard that we all deserve in Vacaville. So um, just those things were amazing. And I just want to kind of talk about that. But it is, I think my presentation today and the housing is like, I, I just, I don't want to create this amazing city that has huge budget companies coming in. And we see this inflow and outflow of people that don't really have a social connection in the city. They're not going to care It's just a place them to make, make money, get a job and go. I want people to be able to say, I used to work here, and now I work here. And now they have that pride of ownership, pride of living, pride of the community. So that's my long rant, but I think it's, just, it's something that I think we should really focus, as much as I love developing real estate, I, 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 want, I know education is a path forward. Uh, my mom was a teacher for 42 years, and I see people throughout the whole community that she touched and helped, and it's, it's just, it's a path forward to create the upper mobility that we need.
0: Thank you. I just want to uh, give a, a quick uh, shout out to our, our fire department. There is a, uh, if I have this correctly, have the uh, fire academy graduation tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. at VPAT. And so it's a lot of hard work to, to get them to, to that place, but uh, how many are graduating? 11. 11. It's always good when you can, you can develop the workforce of the future, especially at a time that it's often difficult to, to recruit I'm pleased that we are we're getting you know excellent candidates and going to be able to provide additional safety for uh... And then one last shout out to uh, spent uh, the Toronto EDC luncheon uh, and uh, it's always exciting several of us attended that and um, I heard from Congressman Thompson but what was really exciting was to hear and see staff mingle with people in the community and talk about what was going on and it's great to see several of us you know up here at these kinds of events and engaging with our community especially when it comes to economic development and you can't help but see the um, I'll just have to call it the exuberation of Don Burris walking around the room so you know he's in a room and he's excited he's got he's got a plan and there's some good things coming so economic development is a significant part and I, I just want to say thank you and and thank you, city manager, for making sure for the last several years that economic development had to be on the radar. It set us in motion, especially when we looked at biomanufacturing to set the course in the future. And so that was very forward thinking. So thank you. With that, uh, good night, Vacaville. This meeting's adjourned. Uh-huh.